Well, good morning, everyone. Grace and peace. Doesn't flow that way. <laughs> well, it's good to see everybody. Glad y'all are here. Um, three ways that Israelites uh, stuck out. Circumcision. Well, kind of that was not quite sticking out, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> We're unique. How that? Circumcision... What they didn't eat, the kosher food laws, and Sabbath. How they stopped on the Sabbath day. And uh, it's like, those things kind of, we're kind of a miss over those things, but it's like really set them apart uh, from the rest of the peoples around them, among other things. But those things really stuck out. And uh, we're going to be running into the bull, uh, to the bull saw, uh, buzz saw, sorry, it's early, right? To the buzz saw of Sabbath observance. And one of the reasons why Christians struggle so much with Sabbath is because Jesus struggled so much with how Sabbath was being observed in his day. Not that the Sabbath was was bad or evil as it was intended, but how it was being observed. And we're going to see some of that uh, certainly today in uh, in our study. So, do you know which psalm in the Psalms, 150 of them, directly relate to the Sabbath? Anybody? Seven. Close. 92. <laughs> well... I'm not inviting you to Vegas. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so if you'll turn in your Bibles, we're gonna, that's what we're going to pray through uh, this morning as we get started. Oh. It's, it's peculiar. It's as big a deal as the Sabbath was uh, for, for Israel, for Jews. Uh, you would think that there would be more Psalms like this, but this is the only one that's specifically labeled for the Sabbath day. Psalm 92. Let's pray together. It is good to praise the Lord and make music to your name, O Most High, proclaiming your love in the morning and your faithfulness at night to the music of the ten-string lyre and the melody of the harp. For you make me glad by your deeds, Lord. I sing for joy at what your hands have done. How great are your works, Lord. How profound your thoughts. Senseless people do not know do not know. Fools do not understand that though the wicked spring up like grass and all evildoers flourish, they will be destroyed forever. But you, Lord, are forever exalted. For surely your enemies, Lord, surely your enemies will perish. All evildoers will be scattered. You have exalted my horn like that of a wild ox. Fine oils have been poured on me. My eyes have seen the defeat of my adversaries. My ears have heard the rout of my wicked foes. The righteous will flourish like a palm tree. They will grow like a cedar of Lebanon planted in the house of the Lord. They will flourish in the courts of our God. They will still bear fruit in old age. And they will stay fresh and green, proclaiming, The Lord is upright. He is my rock. 
and there is no wickedness in him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So think for a minute about that psalm we just read. There was a lot of turn the other cheek and love your enemy in that, right? <laughs> and there was forgive those that hurt you, or right? No, not, not so much. Um, bad guys show up all the time. God's going to beat them up. Um, but I'm not like that. I'm great. I'm a tree, and God's really happy with me. God likes me and hates you. It's a little more involved in that. God likes my people and He hates other people. Uh, so, if you're reading that every Sabbath, <laughs> you're, you're going to have some thoughts about things. But as with all Scripture, we have to put it into some context. So, we've been following Jesus' ministry in Mark. And it's going really well. He is attracting huge crowds. He's pulling from uh, not just the Galilee region, but he's pulling from other Jewish areas. And we'll, we'll see this um, maybe today that, I mean, he, he really is kind of becoming a regional star. But the crowds that are following him are tremendous, primarily because we're told of the miracles, but also because of what he is. He is a mysterious figure. He's a rabbi that's neither fitting easily into either school of thought, the literalists, the Shammai, or the progressives, the, the Hillel. He, he is somebody, and they're, they're trying to figure that out. So it makes sense that he's going to run afoul of the most populist movement in Judah far to the south. Now remember, he's in Galilee. It's a separate country, separate area. Uh, but his reputation is getting out, so the grassroots movement, we'll call them, of the Pharisees are interested in him. He is cutting into their business. Now, like it or not, so much of the Gospels hinge on us understanding who and what the Pharisees were. And hopefully in this study, we can do a better job of they were not just cardboard bad guys. They were a major cultural force in the first century and continued more so after the destruction of the temple about 70 AD. In fact, modern Judaism is a direct descendant of the Pharisee movement. There were many, many kinds of Jews before uh, the destruction of the temple, and you see that in Jesus' day. Um, and you see it more today. There's different kinds of Jews today, but for the most part, the Jews that survived the Roman destruction of Jerusalem were the Pharisees. So there are some good Pharisees and there are some bad Pharisees. Um, we've talked more in depth on Wednesday nights about the Pharisees, and so if you want sort of more depth, I um, come on Wednesdays, or you can watch some of the videos that we've made on those. Uh, this morning, I'll just give you the quick, quick, quick and ugly, so we get a sense of it. The Pharisees start about 150 years before Jesus. Like I say, they are a grassroots movement of middle class people. 
There are really two questions that are dividing uh, first century Jewish society. The first is, how do we worship God? Before they lost their country, they had a very developed system of temple, priests, uh, priests being kind of the bureaucracy that held the country together. It was the Levi priests that collected taxes. It was the Levi priests that would let you know this is good, that's not good. Everybody would travel to the temple. You had the king that was the executive branch, if you will. And then you had the prophets that were kind of the judicial branch. So this system of government had really worked for about 500 years. Well, obviously that falls apart when they lose the temple. It's burned down by the Babylonians about 586 uh, B.C. They go to live as slaves uh, in Babylon and as refugees in other places. So living in exile, we talked about this before, they notice they're changing. They can no longer speak Hebrew. They dress different. They eat different. Their kids don't understand the Bible anymore. So they really set aside someone in their society, this massive push to be teacher, to be rabbi. This person's job was to make sure they could understand the Bible in the way that it was originally written, to speak Hebrew, to teach it to the kids, to be able to say, this is what it meant then, and this is what we do now. This is how we apply it today. So you have these sort of two different interpretations of how to worship God. When the Jews get their country back, they've got a problem. What do you do? I mean, they rebuilt the temple, and they sort of rediscovered the priesthoods, and they rediscovered the king, and so there's part of the country that wants to go back to that. And there's part of the country that says, eh, wait a minute, it, it's probably better if the leaders in our country are the educated, the merit-derived uh, leader as opposed to you're just born into some family. And so it's this struggle back and forth. Do we keep this rabbi system we developed, or do we go back to the more biblical, literal priest temple and everything that God commanded? Wh which one is right? <laughs> and and that's that's the way big arguments usually go, right? There's a little truth in both. If if you want to be literal, God said, have a temple, have priests, sacrifice animals. That's literally what the Bible says. But that's hard to apply. One of the things that we benefit as Christians is that the, the Pharisees shift in the religion is what we practice in Christianity, right? I, I can be a pastor because I feel I was called by God and I studied and I learned. It's not the family that I was born into. And the Old Testament system, it very much, if you were a priest, you had to be born in that family, period. Um, that's the way it was. So there, there's a struggle. We see this in the New Testament between the Sadducees, which are the priestly class that want to hold to the temple, and the Pharisees. Um, now, this is really important, so please hear. Um, the whole rabbinic movement is a big, big movement. Okay, The Pharisees are one part of it. They are a particular branch of obnoxious progressives. Um, they are the people that wear two masks on a plane. 
Okay, if, if you can sort of follow those, those crews. If you have something in your yard that you really love, let's say a lawnmower, a tree, I don't know, something in your yard that you love, that you don't want your neighbors to mess with, what do you do with it? <laughs> you fence it, yeah. Um, I think if we went through the room here, we'd have different reactions, right? Some of us fence it. They put a security camera up. Uh, like Curtis confessed to us before, he would sit out there in his folding chair with a shotgun. Um, two shotguns, just in case, you know, they, they bring friends. Um, to keep it safe. So the Pharisees are... It's not even... They're, they're going to keep guard it with a shotgun. They're going to drag it in the house. And they're going to put it in a safe. The Pharisees are responding to the second big cultural shift that's going on. Uh, what is it? 323 uh, B.C., Alexander the Great uh, invades the East. And it's a cultural, military uh, earthquake. I mean, he, he destroys the Persian Empire that had been the Persian Empire, changes everything. And he brings Greek culture, and it will dominate. It's, it's like the printing press. It's like the invention of computers. There is such cultural pressure for the entire East to become Greek. They speak Greek. They have Greek architecture. They have Greek government. They have Greek uh, customs, worship. It just goes on and on. We still see this today in our society, right? Has, has Greece and eventually Rome influenced the development of our civilization? Oh yeah. I mean, it's, it's all over the place. So this was happening to the Jews as well. That there was this massive pressure to become modern, sophisticated. You don't want to be backwards and hillbilly. Um, <laughs> woke. It, yeah, yeah. It, it was kind of a Greek wokeism. Um, and, and Steve was talking about, you know, what stands out as a Jew, and this is what reminded me. Um, you know, Greeks, for all their advancements, were, were that guy you knew in the fraternity in college. As much of the day as you could spend naked as a Greek, the better the day. I mean, they literally would spend a lot of time naked in the baths, doing business. I mean, that was a three to four hour public bath. Uh, they were big in gymnasiums. Of course, they invented the Olympics. One thing they never tell you about the Olympics, do you know how the Greeks competed in the Olympics? Completely nude. They're not wearing their country jerseys. They're out there oiled up. And everybody said, um, nobody wants to see that. I mean, the Jews didn't want to see that. Um, it gets so bad, this pressure. And it's all over the place. I mean, you see it in Egypt. You see it in Iran, in India. But it got so bad, the pressure in, in Judea, that the Jews obviously stood out as circumcised. The, the Greeks... Greeks are not going to get circumcised for nobody. Um, so when you would do business, you know, you're circumcised. That marks you as different when you compete. So Jewish historians tell us that a lot of Jews went to have surgery to uncircumcise themselves. Now, for the longest time, I didn't know how they did it. And I've seen a, a subsequent archaeological report that uh, I'll never sleep again the same uh, how they did it. But, I mean, can you, can you see the pressure? 
to give up this most sacred sign so that you can fit in? The Pharisees started as a group that said, no, we're not going to go. We're not going to become Greek. In fact, their name, today if we could bring one back, their head would explode because we call them Pharisees. That's a Greek name for them. Why? Because the New Testament is written in Greek, and they hated Greek. They wanted nothing Greek. Um, But that's how the name came to us. They call themselves the parush, or the parushim, plural. Those that separate themselves from the Greeks, from the world. They don't want to become that. So they want to defend Scripture at all costs. We talked about it, uh, Steve and I, and we'll talk about this more, but God's first positive commands to us are avad and shamar, to bring forth life and protect it. The Pharisees took that second half, shamar, and were really serious about it. We are going to protect the Torah, the Word of God. We're, we're going to build a, a shamar, a fence. Modern theologians call it a hedge. But the Pharisees built like a, a great wall, you know, um, just this massive. They don't want people to run up right at the edge of God's law. They want a buffer zone. And in the process, even though I think they had good intentions, even though Jesus is part of the same movement with them, um, he is a literalist coming from Galilee, and these progressives, these double mask-wearing COVID nuts of the Parashim, the Pharisees, uh, make him crazy because they forget what God's intention was. Like we looked at last week, Pharisees are picking on him because he doesn't teach his disciples to fast. So how many times in the books of Moses, the first five books, does God command us to fast? None. There's maybe one possible, um, the Day of Atonement, when it says you should deny yourself like you do on Sabbath. Now the Pharisees said, well, it could be fasting. Could be. So just to be safe, we're going to put that extra mask on, right? Because if one mask is good, two are better. So just in case we're supposed to do it and we don't know it, we're going to do it. And of course it turned into, you know, if fasting is good once a year, it's even better once a week. And even better if we do it twice a week. So it turned into a big maybe to every week, twice a week. And this is what makes Jesus crazy. Um, he, he'll be very clear. The purpose of fasting is so you can communicate with God. And it's really stupid when I'm standing right here um, to teach fasting. And of course, the Pharisees are like, what, what? So they are the type A wound up, um, maybe started with good intentions. I, I think they did start with good intentions. But they're not helping the situation. Um, so, with that long introduction, let's let's look at now we're going to fight over the Sabbath. So, chapter two, verse twenty-three. One Sabbath day, as Jesus was walking through the, some grain fields, his disciples began breaking off heads of wheat. But the Pharisees said to Jesus, "They shouldn't be doing that. It's against the law 
to work by harvesting grain on the Sabbath. So let's, let's talk about that for a minute. Is it against the law, and just the way they word that, to go work your farm on the Sabbath? Yeah, it is. You, you really shouldn't farm. God's first thing he said was holy. The first thing he said to do was take, take a break. Take, take, stop. Appreciate your life. Understand what you're doing. Step back. If God did it, you should do it. But the Pharisees, remember, they're trying to make it practical, understandable for people. So instead of saying, oh, we understand. Your disciples are traveling. You guys don't have a home. You're in this itinerant system. And they're breaking off uh, some of the extra heads uh, so they can have a snack to the place they get to, which incidentally is actually in the law. Uh, Jewish farmers could only harvest the first time in their field. We've talked about this with the olive trees. They can only hit the olive tree one time. God expected uh, on the trees, on the, in the fields, for a certain amount to be left there. And this is what served the poor. Now the poor had to go out and harvest it themselves. So there was some work. They had to go do it. It wasn't dropped in their doorstep, but it was a safety net. And so in a sense, the disciples are doing exactly what the law commanded. But the Pharisees have built this this wall around it, right? Nothing can be done. And I'm going to watch you. And you know, it's just that guy, that person. And Jesus is like, will you keep focused here, buddy? Um, Now, in so many ways, if we didn't know Jesus was a rabbi, we would know Jesus was a rabbi by the way he responds. How is he going to prove to a Pharisee that they are wrong? With questions and what's the greatest proof that they have? Scripture. That's ultimately what, what it's all about. When they... And they debate with each other. They, they quote scriptures. So that's what Jesus comes up with. Haven't you ever read the scripture? Which is an insult, right? Because how, how do they do this? They memorize the whole thing. And you know, full rabbis are not cheating like we are. Uh, they have memorized the whole stinking thing. So when they're having these conversations back and forth, if you can't remember, if haven't you read this part, is it, um, you know, come on, sissy, did you get a C in, in uh, uh, Beit Midrash? You don't remember this? So haven't you ever read in the scriptures that King David did when his companions were hungry? He went to the house of God during the days of Abiathar the high priest, and he ate special bread reserved for the priests alone, and then gave some to his companions. That was breaking the law, too. Then he said to them, Sabbath was made to benefit people, and not people to benefit the Sabbath. And unless they're not listening, and I, the son of man, and master, even of the Sabbath. And the crowd goes wild. Yeah, and we're off to the races. So again, he's sticking with this point. The law is vital. And Jesus is very clear. I'm not here to abolish it. I'm not. What I am here to do is to make sure, as Jews, 
you understand the point of all this. God's intent was not for you to, above all things, never violate the Sabbath. God's point was for you to set apart part of your week to reflect on your life, what God has done, to rest, in Hebrew, to sort of finish the creation act so you get closer to God. But what you're doing is getting so focused on the tree that there's no forest anymore. Um, You're not even focused on the tree. You're focused on the leaf. Um, And what you're practically doing is hurting people. You're, You're completely missing the point. Now, to be fair, this type of argument was going on regularly between the two schools of thought in Judaism. Between the literalist, the Shammai, and this is where Jesus grew up. Um, that's why I say Jesus is Shammai. When they say, why don't you fast? A Shammai rabbi would say, because it's not commanded in Torah. Uh, so Jesus is tending there. And he's sort of doing that here with the Pharisees. But the real unique part, and this is where we get excited about Jesus, is he adds this kick to the groin here in 28. And I, the Son of Man, by the way, that mysterious prophetic figure in Daniel that is the second power in heaven, uh, that's me. Um, He's saying, I am God, I'm a Messiah, I'm everything. And I am the master of the Sabbath. The way he's saying this, so rabbis rule on uh, halakha, and this is what is permitted or what is not permitted. So we know the law says rest on Sabbath. Take a break. So the Pharisees would go to their rabbis and say, all right, so what's work? Can I work in my garden? No. Okay. Um, Can I do laundry? No. Um, Can I make my kids clean the room? Yes. You know, this is funny, and just between men. One of uh, the the things that they debate is, uh, can I have sex on the Sabbath? Uh, Is that work? (laughs) Depends who you're married to. No. That's not in the Talmud. What is in the Talmud is that the Sabbath is for sex. Um, So that's one thing the Pharisees that you could do on the Sabbath. Um, That's a time you you rest and relax. So it's all these rules that the rabbi is supposed to interpret for you, right? Because he's the expert. Jesus has just said, I am the ultimate halakhic source. I am the one who determines Sabbath because I'm the one that created it. Please understand what he just did to their little worlds. Um, He can get and fight as a rabbi, but he's also this other figure that they can't figure out. He's, He's claiming to be God. He's claiming to be the Messiah. He's claiming to be the one. So, Pastor Steve. All right. You ready for another example? So, uh... Our versings and chapterings in the Bible, sometimes they are not great. And here is one. The horse must have skipped a step whenever he, the guy was doing it. So the, the chapter 3 should be moved down. These are Mark uses these both of these stories to really make the same point. And I think a question that you, we got to ask, um, and that's what these stories are intended to do, is to make us ask the question, 
Why in the world is violating the Sabbath on the terms of the Pharisees worthy of, of killing Jesus? It seems excessive, doesn't it? It's like, wow, come on, just back up just a little bit. But that's how serious they were taking it. Kurt and I, are, we are looking for this source. But we were told repeatedly in seminary that it kind of worked like this. The way the fair, one of the reasons the Pharisees were so radical in requiring people to get in line with their understanding of the Torah is because they believed fundamentally that if everyone on a single day completely obeyed the Torah according to their standards, guess what would happen? The Messiah would come. That's right. And so, you violate the Sabbath, and you are teaching others to violate the Sabbath, that is in essence saying, you're keeping the Messiah from coming. So we got to do away with you so that we can pave the way for the Messiah. It's a problem. And do you see what has happened? That they have become so entrenched that they must miss the Messiah when he is right in their face. <laughs> right? That's not good. And so this, it may, this, like, our struggles with say, but man, I think one of the challenges that we are faced with here is what do we get fixated on? What do we demand conformity from other people from that really has nothing to do with what God is calling us to be? And we miss the wholeness and the healing that the Messiah is trying to bring us right now. Right? Because the kingdom of God has come in Jesus. So, another time, chapter 3. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue. And a man with a shriveled hand was there. So, shriveled hand... Uh, Pastor Kurt was talking about the Avad and the Shamar. When somebody has this shriveled hand, their capacity to be fruitful and to do what God is calling them to do is seriously limited. It's like they are, they are broken. And more often than not, that brokenness was blamed on a sin. Right? So, but he's there in the synagogue. He is seeking connection with God, right? That's what you do to go to the synagogue. The man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked, asked them, Here's the question. Which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? And that's exactly what happened in the synagogue. Silence. See, Jesus had a masterful way of formulating his questions that all that that consistently put the Pharisees in this place where they had no response. 
because he could paint them into the corner very quickly. Now, verse 5. What ticks Jesus off? <laughs> yeah, right? Hard hearts, not being, not being able or willing to see the pain of others. How many times is Jesus, through the Gospels, uh, going about his work of preaching, teaching, and he's interrupted by broken people? Bartimaeus is one that we'll come across later. And he is blind. And he's crying out. His disciples are saying, shut up. And, and he said, no, bring him to me. Remember what Jesus, the question Jesus asking? What do you want me to do for you? Now that's a question. And this guy, being in a synagogue, he's desiring wholeness and healing. And Jesus looked around, verse 5. He looked around them in anger. I mean, you don't see this very often. We talked about it last week, Jesus flipping over tables in the, uh, in the temple. It's not the picture of Jesus that we are normally accustomed to seeing. But when Jesus notices people disregarding the pain of others, he gets mad. Looked around them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Wow. Somebody is made well, and that leads to somebody wanting to kill. This is how convinced they were of their position. Thoughts, Kurt? Yeah, I mean, it's... How did we get here? Right. Um, the Pharisees allow the crippled man into the synagogue. And remember, the synagogue, again, it's a Greek name where the Pharisees would have hated. It's Beit Knesset, um, the, but they would say, where we meet to discuss Scripture. Now, if this crippled guy had tried to go to the temple, they would not let him in. Yeah. Because the law is very clear that deformed people cannot be in the presence of God at the temple, period. So they're not allowed. Especially if they're, if they're maimed in any way. Right. Um, eunuchs, anything like that are forbidden. But the Pharisees are not that way. They let people come. They, they don't care who you are. They don't care if you're, you're hurt. Come to the synagogue and learn God. So you see them making one step forward. So that's a good thing. But they get, they get stuck in, we've got to protect the wall, the Sabbath. Question. But at the same time, I think a lot of it was they wanted them there as examples of here's what happens to you if you don't follow the law, if you don't practice. Oh, it's true. Good point. Yeah. And, and, and you, you, you bring a, a good thought. I, I wondered myself, if they were Pharisaic rabbis, Hillel rabbis, if they weren't doing an object lesson to catch Jesus. I mean, they're, they're quite capable of that. That's possible. But uh, that being said, they did allow uh, different kinds of people to enter uh, the synagogue. So that's good. But that first step then leads to this bad step where they can't get, they can't get past the laws 
the details, the interpretations, and it's, it's really a problem. Does it seem like there's a lot of sick, broken, possessed people running around? I mean, it seems like all Jesus is doing. You know, this is one of the things that I always try to, to harp on us. This is the middle of a war. This is the Ukraine. Okay? This is not just walking down Mulberry one day and we go to have... I mean, this is the reality of the Roman occupation. So there are a lot of hurt people. Now, in this case, I think the guy was born with it the way they described it. But um, there's beat, crucified, uh, traumatized people all, all over the place. Um, we cannot allow ourselves to become like the Pharisees. That good intentions that go sour. Where we get so lost in our rules or our interpretation of the rules that we miss the big picture. Now, this is dancing on the head of a a knife, right? Jesus is not throwing out the Sabbath. Now, we're Gentiles and it's a little different for us, but he's not saying to the Jews, do whatever you want on the Sabbath, go crazy, you know, go, go farm, I don't care, it doesn't really matter. He's saying, remember the law because it leads you closer to God. And I think we as Christians have a responsibility not to follow the law, but to understand why it was given and the, the teachings behind it. So we're sort of back in the first century, right? There's all these cultural pulls. There's one element of our society that would say, dump the Bible altogether. And then there's an element in our society that would say, turn the Bible into a law code That's right. um, that, that is, you know, it's a criminal code. We, we've got to be here in the middle. This is Scripture, and we do need to protect it. It is valuable. It is the Word of God, and it, it directs us. But we have to keep the purpose in mind. It doesn't mean we become Greeks. It doesn't mean we start accept, accepting what the world says. Well, that's okay now. We, we're not talking about that. This is a very internal focused, don't let the wall become you. Remember, the wall is protecting what's important, and that's what's important. So your challenge uh, for the week is to kind of culturally, Pastor Kurt did such an excellent job of, of just pulling together for us that this is a cultural battle that they're having, right? And the Pharisees are trying to do everything that they can to preserve their way of living and being in the world uh, and to keep the Greek culture from penetrating them anymore. So what about the prevailing culture that we find ourselves in ticks you off? How long do you have? Uh, no, no. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it really, it don't, don't, it, it really, make a list uh, and allow yourself to get in touch with what, get in touch with your anger. And as you get in touch with your anger, maybe just simply ask God, God, how are you calling me not to point my finger at the these things that make me angry, but to go and to be life and to share life and holiness and peace in that space. Brothers and sisters, that's the only way our culture is going to get turned back around. It's not going to be by fomenting the anger, but stopping it 
by being a source of healing and wholeness in it. Is that clear? Good challenge? Good challenge. Let's pray. Father our God, we reminded that the road to damnation has started with good intentions. And so we saw your children try to recover, try to hold on to your word. And they got lost. Father God, we know you tell these stories to us not so that we will hate another group of people, but so that we will not go down this road. Lord God, we feel the same pressure they did back then. It seems as if our society now is at war with itself. So many big questions we're trying to answer. And we're trying to answer through your will, with your word. Help us to walk that path that you did. Help us to be truly like you. Not to mindlessly regurgitate what you taught, but be able to internalize it and to think, to understand, to keep the big picture, O Lord, that it is your desire for us to grow closer to you, to be the people we were meant to be, to be people that will listen to the sound of the shepherd's voice. Help us prepare for the day that you do call us and call us home. In all the works of our hands, all the walls we built, all the things that we did will pass away. And what will remain is what we have in you. So help us, O Lord, to give all that we have now for our relationship with you. And let us understand, just as you navigated Rome and the Pharisees and the Greeks, you navigate our world today. Through wars and rumors of wars, you bring true peace. Help us to be part of the solution and not the problem. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Grace and peace, everyone.